0: thanks God for the choir. Thank you for opportunities to uh, gather, to focus, to as one community, one body, uh, direct our attention to you uh, in contrast to our busy lives out there at home, at work, in the community. Thank you for the opportunity to center, to get grounded, to uh, reconnect, not just with one another, but with you. Help us to uh, have a disposition of alleluia while we're here and while we're not here, while we're uh, working, while we're playing, in all of the meditations of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. As we open uh, your word today, help us to be attentive to you, to your spirit, and to your will. Give us ears that are good to hear your things and eyes that are good to see your kingdom and your way. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. The grace of God and the flaws of man, the grace of God and the flaws of man. That's the name of a new short-term life group that's starting today at 11 o'clock in room B110. There's a little blurb about it in your bulletin if you'd like to read about it. If you've never been in a life group, if you're not currently in a life group, if you uh, maybe are in a life group and are up to taking a break from that for six weeks, I encourage you to consider that. This new life group is going to look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three of the great patriarchs, uh, the three greatest patriarchs in the scriptures and of the Jewish people. Uh, So studying in the scriptures uh, from the book of Genesis, but also uh, reading and thinking about the grace of God even in their lives, the flaws of man, the grace of God, the grace of God and the flaws of man. For that reason and because it fits with some other things that we're talking about now in the life of our congregation, I'm going to read this morning from the book of Genesis. So we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament, going to jump all the way back to the first book in the Bible, beginning at chapter 32, verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Jacob, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanahim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob uh, says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. So he's both afraid and seeking reconciliation with his brother, whom he long ago wronged. When the messengers returned to Jacob from Esau, they said, We, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Big greeting party. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Uh, War strategy. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps, which is what that word Mahanaim means. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. going to have to ramp it up a little bit. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so it's been a big week in our culture. Uh, not so much in the church, but it was a big week and a fun week in the culture. On Thursday, most of us, many of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, celebrated in some way, shape, or form, actively, passively, giving, or getting uh, the great biblical holiday of Halloween. But October 31st, you must know, and maybe you already do know, is not just about Halloween. It also happens to be Reformation Sunday or Reformation Day. Yes, Reformation Day. October 31st, Reformation Day, the anniversary of the day in history on which the German priest, monk, and renowned theologian Martin Luther nailed his to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral Church, uh, his 95 theses in the year 1517 in protest of the many excesses he saw in the universal, I don't, I'm reluctant to say the Roman Catholic Church because we're not Catholic bashing, but of the universal church of that day starting with but not limited to the sale of indulgences by the church for the forgiveness of a person's sin, which was a part of what... I. I must call a racket in the church of that day on behalf of the church in order to fund the construction of some more great cathedrals. Indulgences, selling, buying, getting forgiveness of sins from that through that to raise money to build a cathedral. This week I ran across this meme of Martin Luther. It's a picture of him standing at the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Church saying, stop coming up and saying trick or treat. I said, I have 95 theses, not 95 reeses. (laughs) So obviously, October 31st has uh, come to mean more in our culture Halloween than Reformation Day. But of course, the theses of Martin Luther, who is best known and maybe the most pivotal figure of the great Reformation of the church in the 1500s, his 95 theses were and would be... uh, critically important to the health and the integrity and the veracity and the viability and the vitality of the Christian faith, the church, and Christian doctrine, not just then but for centuries to come, even to today and into the future. And among the other things that were focal points of the Re- Reformation for Martin Luther and all of that other loose community of reformers was the recovery of this biblical doctrine called grace which had deteriorated or even been lost over many centuries, forgotten due to biblical illiteracy and waywardness of theology, tending to go not God's way but our way and toward uh, the directions of efficiency or uh, giving in to the ways of our hearts and our world. But God used Martin Luther and others mightily to rediscover, and not only rediscover, but then to boldly proclaim not only the errors of the church for centuries, but also this glorious and key doctrine so necessary to the church, the doctrine of God's grace. But what is that word, which is almost ubiquitous in our culture, in our common vocabulary now today, what does that word really mean? It's become sort of this uh, loose, fluffy, amorphous word in Christianity. It's used in a lot of different ways in our culture. What is meant truly, historically, scripturally by the word grace? In our modern language, we use the word grace to describe the prayer that we say before a meal. The word grace has been used to describe Michael Jordan in the way that he played basketball or Barry Sanders in the way he played football. The word grace has been used to describe elite gymnasts or the moves and the movements of gifted dancers. Not me. The word ungrace has been used to describe my dancing. That's a different story. Grace is the period of time between when something is due and when one is penalized for not having turned that thing in or completed that task. In some contexts, grace means elegant or courteous. Kings and queens have been called your grace. And grace is the name given to girls and thus also women. And so it's understandable that the word grace in our culture and even within our Christian sphere has become blurry, blurry. But but in the scriptures, the word grace has this more specific meaning, and with the words printed on the front of our bulletins this morning, A.W. Tozer gives us a fantastic definition of grace, at least biblically. He writes, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self caused propensity to pity the wretched, to spare the guilty, to welcome the outcast, and to bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. Its use to us sinful people is to save us and to make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read it again. For me, it's so good. Grace is the good pleasure of God, something in which God delights, that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature, and it appears to us as a self-caused propensity to have compassion on the wretched, to spare the guilty, to welcome the outcast, and to bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation, punishment. It's used to us sinful people is to save us, to make us whole, to heal us, and to make us or cause us to sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's inherent kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And we see this in Jacob who was really a scoundrel Jacob was really a scoundrel. He sort of makes it into the pantheon of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His uh, grandfather's the great renowned Abraham, his daddy, was the highly regarded Isaac. He had quite a pedigree, but he was also somewhat of a scoundrel. He deceived his father in his father's old age and waning senses. I found out a week or two ago about a friend of mine, a friend for the last 20 years, who stole $32,000 from his 92 year old mother. Stole, not borrowed, but stole. Convicted of that crime, his mother said, I'm too old. I need him in my life. Said to the judge, Please don't send him to jail. The, the judge refrained, uh, assigned him to probation for several years and full repayment of what he had stolen. But what kind of people steal from their parents, we might think? Isaac, one of the patriarchs, for starters. It's exactly what he did, that's who he was. Isaac not only stole from his dad, but he also stole a birthright from his older brother Esau, essentially, the blessing, a form of inheritance. Jacob had multiple wives, and not only that, he gave unapologetic preferential treatment to one of his wives and also to her children over all of his other children. In some ways, he was a terrible parent. He had a temper. He got angry. He was accused by his brothers-in-law of soaking their family, of siphoning off their family's wealth for himself and his wives. And yet, as undeserving as the great Jacob was, God, quote, in Tozer's words, bestowed upon him gifts solely because of, quote, the self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature. And appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast, and bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. And it would seem that That Jacob, along the way, didn't recognize this and did recognize this. Sometimes didn't, sometimes did. Sometimes was grateful, sometimes lived in response to that, but sometimes didn't. In this case, verse 10, he did. He says, I am unworthy of all of the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Aware of how good God had been to him despite how and who he had been himself. Nothing about me is worthy or deserves or is earned, merited or merited all of the kindness you have shown me, God, Jacob says. Or your faithfulness to me, and yet I'm greatly blessed. You have been so good to me because of who you are, because of how you are. This goes to the center of all things, the nature, the character, the attributes of God himself. How do you think of God? And this is a lesson that many of us, I would say, struggle to still embrace. We live in a world of ungrace. We were raised in a culture of ungrace. We strive for success and beauty and accomplishments in order to feed our egos, to hold us up, to make us hopefully prove that we are worthy. We seek to accumulate good works and good deeds in the church as if at some point we might impress God or deserve God's favor, God's blessings, God's pleasure, God's love, as if we will be able to prove to God, prove to others that we have loved enough, given enough, shared enough, that we're fast enough, pure enough, holy enough, admirable enough, successful enough, impressive enough, but the message of the scriptures and the the message of Jesus and the life of Jesus testify to something different. There is nothing that I can do to cause God to love me more. There is nothing you can do to cause God to love you more than God already does. There is nothing I can do to cause God to love me any more than he already does. And conversely, reciprocally, equally beautiful, there is nothing I can do that can cause God to love me less than he also already does. He already knows it and he loves me fully. I suppose that we can disappoint God, maybe we can upset God, but there is nothing that we could do to cause God to withdraw his love from us. God's love, blessings, goodness, benefits are for people who are broken, who are depraved, who are failures, who are self-righteous, who are ignoble and insecure, who say things they regret, who do things they regret, like me, like I do. Maybe like the person next to you, maybe the person you came with, maybe the person behind you. It is our story and sometimes our secret story. Someone who is a regular part of the public leadership of this congregation said to me recently, I don't feel really good about leading in public sometimes, about being up front so to speak because I continue to suffer with this temptation. And we went on to talk about that, and I said to that person, Well, that's good. That's okay. That fits. Because we actually, in this church, don't let anyone but sinners up on the platform. The only kind of people we let lead here, the only people who are welcomed onto our deacon board or our elder board or onto the platform or onto the worship team, are proven sinners. <laughs> sinners with a record, sinners with a profile, people with secrets. And when you think about it, that's, that's all the people who ended up in Jesus' camp. It's all the people Jesus interacted with, right? It was Peter who denies knowing Jesus three times. It's Mark, whom we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who abandoned the mission. It's the prostitute who came to Jesus with a dirty record and a dirty life and a soiled reputation. It's Martha who figures that she has to be good enough. impress everybody in her home and wants everyone else to function in her way as well. It's the apostle Paul who was a murderer of Christians, who had all of his own issues. It was Zacchaeus who stole from his fellow Jews indirectly by working for the occupying government. Traitor. Benedict Arnold. I told you before that uh, I grew up in a kind of a Bible-believing, Presbyterian, evangelical-ish church. And periodically that word grace was used. And I'm certain that along the way people talked about grace. The pastors, Sunday school teachers. But I never got it. I never got it. And continued to live as if I had to earn, if I had to be good, if I had to impress God. As if God was going to love me more if and as I did. And I never got it, I think, not because people weren't talking about it, not because the pastor didn't explain it, but because I lived immersed in a world with parents and teachers and teammates and adults and voices in my life that said, you have to be better. You have to impress. You have to be good. You're not lovable yet. And all of that is ungrace. And God invites us into a world of grace in which he knows that thing you're addicted to. He knows your secrets. He knows the mistakes you've made. He knows the mistakes you will make. He knows all that stuff that's in your past. He knows all the stuff that's in your future. He knows how you treat your spouse. He knows the words that slip out to your parents or to your children. He knows all of that. And he still bestows benefits generally because of his inherent goodness and nature and what delights God. We live in a world that is you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, everything is a deal or a negotiation. You have to bring something to the table. What do you have to offer? How good are you? How attractive are you? How bright are you? What's your track record look like? How successful are you? How gifted are you? And yet we come into the kingdom of the son whom God loves and we're able to sing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a saint like me. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a saint like me. Nah. That saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. Imagine, and in a moment we will remember Jesus' cross around this table, but imagine Jesus, just picture Jesus in your mind hanging on the cross, and what is he saying? What is he thinking? Oh, Father, I am so sick of these people. They are such a drag and such a drain. It's been such a hard haul. They're so annoying, so frustrating. I just, it's, been, it's taken everything of mine just to put up with them. I'm done with it. I'm doing this thing that you call me to do, but with regrets and a bad attitude and will forgive them and be done with it because that's what I was called to do. Or was Jesus saying there, out of the heart of the love of God his Father, Father, forgive these beloved, my dear and tender ones, my sheep, those I care for, those I have looked after. What was the disposition and what were the words of Jesus on the cross? A graceless Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is an empty religious system or a moral code or ethics. Uh, Yesterday I was sitting next to, he would describe himself as a secular San Francisco Jew, a friend. And we, we hadn't really ever talked in great depth until yesterday for the first time, though I've known him and been on a board with him and played with him for years. And he shared with me, he said, you know, uh, I was actually, went to an Episcopalian church for a few years. My wife's mother uh, became an Episcopalian priest later in her life. And for a few years, we went to that church. And it was good, it was actually good. Uh, it helped give my kids moral Fiber or a moral code. And I regret that I didn't, I regret now that I didn't speak then and say Christianity, church, following Jesus is not about a moral code. It's not about a set of ethics, though they, those may come along with it, but it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship with someone who loves and loves and loves and loves and loves prodigals and sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and unworthy, pretending Presbyterians. Christianity is not about what we can do for God. It's not about how good we are. A Christianity that would be about what we can do for God or about our righteousness would just be wacky, according to Jesus. Absolutely wacky. His hope and desires that we can get into ourselves and so become vessels and agents of a reality, of a grace that loves despite how we are, as we have been loved despite how we are. I can't remember, and I should be able to remember, We spent four and a half months in the book of Colossians and I don't remember if there was a sermon on grace but in the second verse of Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter one he wrote to God's holy people in Colossae the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ grace and peace to you from God our Father grace to you And then verse six, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. This gift of unrestrained, undeserved love bears fruit in the world, bears fruit in our lives. Fast forward to chapter four, verse six. Let your conversation always be full of of grace so that you may know how to answer everyone. Everyone and answer them kindly and with love and with generosity and with a love that has no strings attached. And Paul finishes his letter to the Colossians with these words. Chapter four, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. The grace of God be with you. Let's do a little exercise real quick as we wrap up. As we move toward eating and drinking together. I want you to close your eyes. And put out your hands, open your hands. And pray along with me. With open hands, God, we have nothing to offer you but filthy rags, our fallen selves, our broken natures. When we're honest, when we're truthful with ourselves and with you, we have tried to show you and show the people next to us and around us that we're worthy and that we're good and that we're lovable. And we realize at the same time that we're not on our own apart from you we inhale and we exhale and we receive the gift of your grace we receive the gift of you dying in our place we receive your relentless pursuing of us like the good father looking out toward his wayward son And running down the road and throwing his arms around him. Unworthy as that child was. Having messed up, having offended, having spent, having been irresponsible. And yet you love. Help us to live in your love. Despite the church we may have been raised in, the culture in which we live the ways that our quid pro quo world works. Help us to bask in the glory of your grace, to enjoy that, and to bring you joy in receiving. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.